So we are in 1 John, so go ahead and make your way to 1 John, and I have a question to begin this morning. It's more, not so much of a question, but an idea as we sit in the, the overall theme behind not just why John is writing, but how he structures this letter. And the question is, you know, how many of you guys have like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or a Garmin, something that tracks your fitness? Anybody? Am I the only one? We care about our health, right? We like to, we like to know what our heart rate is. You know, what, what's my peak heart rate during exercise? What's my resting heart rate? How was my sleep last night? Um, we sit in all these, this technology that will give us a bunch of metrics in regards to our physical health. As we get into a car, our, our dashboard has all kinds of meters on it to tell us what's going on. Gives us our engine speed, gives us our road speed, gives us our engine temperature, lets us know if there's gas in the tank and where, and where all we, uh, where that car is sitting in all of those different metrics. So take those ideas and now place that as a layer on top of what John is doing. He is giving us metrics, he's giving us gauges that we can test ourselves to see where we are in our relationship with the Lord. So he begins this letter with what we started in last week, that he's, he's talking about the word of life. He's talking about Jesus, the one who has always existed, the one who created the heavens and the earth, and we told, we're told that God spoke, and here we are. Talking about baby Eden this morning, God spoke from before the foundation of the world. God knew that child that was born this morning. It's powerful. He is the word of life. And he says very specifically, that, that, Jesus, that eternal life, this is the one that we are declaring to you. And you've heard, and you've responded, and you've received him. And we have fellowship with one another. And truly, the relationship, the participation in life that we have is ultimately with our Father together. We just sang a song about the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's coming a day when the bride and the groom, Jesus, are going to become one for all eternity. And John says, I'm writing to you because I want the gauge of your joy to be pegged at full. Always. And to have joy pegged at full, what does it require? It requires being free from sin. Therefore, our God, who is light, his blood has freed us from sin. And to be free from sin keeps our joy pegged out full. Yet when we sin and we all err, we all miss, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes in just outright rebellion towards God, what happens to our joy? What happens to that gauge, that meter? We sit in shame. We sit in, I can't believe I said that. And what are we instructed to do? Confess. Go back to Jesus. Have a conversation. I was wrong. That was wrong. My heart is off. And what, are we do what does John declare to us? He is faithful and just 
to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. What happens to your joy meter when you walk out of that conversation with God? Full. And he says, I'm not only writing to you so that your joy would be full, but I'm writing to you so that you would not sin. We want our sin meter to be empty. Right? We don't want sin to be full in our lives. We don't want it to keep bumping and pegging there down at the bottom. We want that sin meter to be empty. But the reality is, is that we all err. And then he declares to us, we have an advocate, a paraclete, Jesus himself who comes alongside of us to intercede on our behalf through his blood, through his sacrifice, through his life, and keeps us in that position of boldness, free from shame, relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is our helper. He is the propitiation for our sins. Keeps that sin meter at empty, keeps that joy meter at full. Well, God bless you. Love it. Out of the mouth of babes. By the way, I really, I have absolutely no problem with kids in here. I love kids being in here. I really do. I don't mind the interruptions or any of that stuff. Welcome to life together, right? I really, this is, this is the body of Christ all ages. So welcome. And I receive your apology and the Lord bless you. I wouldn't even notice if you didn't say anything. All right, getting back on track. So John's given us these different meters. And another meter is your obedience meter. I don't even know how to put those two words together. Anyways, anyways, your obedience meter. We know that we know him through obedience to Jesus' commands. And his command is really easy. Love God with all that you are. Your mind, your new heart that's been given to you, your mind that is being transformed into the image of Christ, the strength that you have physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, with all that you are, with all that he has created you to be, love your creator. And don't forget that your creator not only created you, but he created every single human being. So love your neighbor as yourself. So how's your gauge of love? Again, this is, this is what he is doing. He's encouraging believers. And we don't like to sit in our own personal metrics often because they highlight our insufficiencies, where we feel weak. And then we have that beautiful word from Jesus to Paul. Paul, in your weakness, you will find my strength. You will find my joy. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm done chasing feelings, Lord. I'm done chasing my own emotions, the emotions that the world gives to me. Let me see myself as you see me. Through your grace, through your love, through your sacrifice, through your commands, through my brothers and sisters. You feel encouraged by John? I do. I love this letter. And then he goes over and over again. I've, I've written to you, little children, young men, old men. I've written to you all of these things because you know Jesus, because you know your Father. 
We just sang about we are more than conquerors in him. We have overcome this world, the flesh, and the devil through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's why he's writing to you. That's why he's writing to me. This is why we study the, these words because they're so encouraging. We ended last time in verse 15 of chapter 2. The goal is to finish chapter 3 today, and we'll see if we can achieve that goal or not. But um, this whole idea of do not love the world or the things of the world, we covered a little bit of the idea last week that in John 3.16, which I said 3.17 last week, which I was corrected at the end of service. I'm not saying by who. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He's given us because of his love for humanity. And here we're told not to love the world. So yes, we are to love people. We are to love our brothers and sisters and our enemies. As Jesus has given us instruction, we are to love all humanity because our God loves all humanity. But at the same time, when we're talking about the world here, the idea of the world, this is, this is human society, human culture, human ideas, human ways, human philosophies that stand in opposition to the will of God. So listen to this whole sentence, and we'll kind of we'll back, back up and um, just pick it apart for the application in our life. This is the first imperative in the letter, do not love the world. Or the things in the world. Why? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In definition, for all that is in the world, which is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is all that is in the world, is not of the Father. Not sourced from the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So these, these, this idea of loving the world, it is in opposition to loving God. The things of the world, the, the ways of the world, these lusts that are described, they stand in opposition to God's will in our life. But think about this, the word lust, it's uh, in the Greek, it's this whole idea of a desire, a longing, a craving, and context tells us whether it's good or bad. So I desire to have a godly relationship with my wife. I desire to have a godly relationship with my children. I long to have a godly relationship with each and every one of you. That's a, that's a right desire. The translators, they use the word lust to help convey that idea of something that's icky, something that's evil. So the idea here is that the lust of the flesh, the cravings, the longings, the desires that we have just by being human beings, those, those things that ultimately cause a separation in our relationship with God. There's something in us naturally that lusts against the, the desire and the will of God in our life. We want to be our own kings and queens. We want other people to submit to us. We want what we want, when we want it, the way we want it. These are the, those whole, everything we can all sit in, in recognition of what it means to crave something that stands in opposition to God's will in our lives. 
our eyes, those things that we see, you know, whether it's material things or envy, covetousness that we may have towards other people and towards things. The Bible gives lots of definition on what it means to crave the things that we see. And again, the, the idea is those things that stand in opposition, in contrast to who God is, to what he's directing us to long for and crave for. The pride of life is pretty interesting because when we talk about the word of life, Jesus is the word of life. He is the eternal life. The Greek word is zoe. This word here, it's bios. It's where we get biography from. So the pride of life has everything to do with our manner of life. I'm, you know, we, we puff up at the degrees that we have, our occupations, the things that we've done and been successful in in this life, those things that we're seeking and, and uh, desiring to, the goals that we're pursuing to have in our life so that we can be larger and more successful and on that pedestal in contrast to other people. That's this idea of the pride of life. And all of these ideas, they're being... They really can encompass all the different definitions for sin that we have in the Bible. But they are being put forth by John as this, these things, these world systems, these world governments, these political perspectives, these areas of just outright sin and rebellion. These are things that are all sourced within the natural man and the natural woman. And as we have a relationship with Jesus, we're just told that Jesus Christ has given us victory. We have overcome the wicked one is what's being declared. And now look at the activity of the wicked one in our lives. Um, and again, it's, it's being able to stand in that mirror too. Look at who you are apart from Jesus Christ and the wicked desires that each one of us has that stand in opposition. But the exhortation, he who does the will of the Father, the will of God, abides forever. He's going to start picking up on the things of the world, ideas, those, those things that cause separation between you, church, believer, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the singular Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists, little a, plural, have come. By which we know that it is the last hour, a sign of those last days. Last days being defined even since John's time. Verse 19. They, these little antichrists, they went out from us. They exited from us. But the contrast, they were not of us. They were not out of us. And the language here, it's, it's this, yes, there were human beings that were present in our fellowships is what he's saying but they left they were not never really of jesus they were never really of us but they exited from us they were not of us for if they had been of us i love this promise if you're jesus is he's going to give you the power to remain they would have continued they would have abided, remained with us. But they went out, 
that they might be made manifest, revealed that none of them were of us. And again, this is, this is, a, this is a gauge. It's a gauge that we should have in our own relationship with the Lord, and it's to be a gauge in regards to those who preach false, opposing teachings in regards to who Jesus Christ is. This is one of the, the, the ideas that I sit in just when it comes to ideas about Jesus. When you sit in John's day, John is roughly 50 years from the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus at the time that he's writing this letter. 50 years later, there are already many false teachings about who Jesus was, about who he is, about what he did. And those false teachings have already crept their way into the church in a variety of different forms, 50 years post-Jesus' ascension. We're now sitting near 2,000 years post-Jesus' ascension. We have to filter through a lot more false teaching about the nature and character of Jesus. And I say that, you know, in in, in John's day, he would have been dealing clearly false teachings about Jesus, dealing with the idolatry of the communities that he was standing in. We live in a day and a time where you can go plug into any variety of gatherings of people gathering in the name of Jesus, where the name of Jesus comes out with a variety of dictionaries. Just in in our community alone, you can assemble this morning with, I don't know, what, what number do you want to place to it? 10, 20, 50, 100 different perspectives on nature, character of who God is, of who Jesus Christ is, about what it is that he did, about what it is that he's doing today, about what it is that he's going to do when he comes. As we have to sit in all of that information, the, the gauge that we are supposed to pay attention to is truth versus lie. And our only gauge, our only metric that we can sit in is the word of God. Is what this person communicating to me, is that the mind and the heart, the will of our almighty God? Or is that teaching anti? Is it in opposition to who the Messiah is? Is this, an op- is, this, is this teaching the product of the lust of somebody's flesh, the lust of their eyes, the pride of their ministry and their life and their activity? And whether we all listen to a variety of teachers, whether we read, whether we listen, whether we're watching on TV, whether we're engaging in other uh, gatherings of the body of Christ, again, this is, it's not that we're supposed to be out there sniffing for sin and standing in judgment of, over other people, but we're going to be encouraged by John later on in this letter that we're supposed to test the spirits. Is that heart? Are those words? Are they sourced from the mind and the heart and the will of the God who created the heavens and the earth? Or is that the source of opposition to him? Again, we have to be really careful in our minds, in our mouths, in our typing. This is just, it's a, it's a, it's a hard area. 
Because John and the other letters were told that we're not supposed to fellowship with those who are proclaiming lies about Jesus. Yeah, we're not supposed to be removed out of this world. We're supposed to be in this world as salt and light in this world proclaiming the gospel. And as we're in this world, we are commanded, and where's our gauge on this? We are commanded to be free from lies and abide in truth. God help us. And he's going to go on and talk about the anointing that we have. So verse 20. You have an anointing from the Holy One. Specific gift from the Holy One. The Holy One, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you know all things. I have written to you. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And that no lie, no falsehood is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is anti-Christ who denies the Father and the Son. Listen to how direct this is, verse 23. Whoever denies the Son, whoever rejects Jesus, does not have the Father. He who acknowledges, confesses the Son, has the Father also. Very direct proclamation that anybody who says, I believe in God, I believe in God the Father, rejects the person and the work of Jesus, really does not have a relationship with the Creator. They have a relationship with a the falsehood. They have a relationship with a lie. And this is why proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the truth is so important. Because so many people do abide and remain in lies and think they are in right relationship with God, and they are not. And again, do we go poking fingers in their chest? Sometimes. Do we go on our knees in tears and begging? Sometimes. We need the Holy Spirit to direct us in those conversations because every single conversation is different. Verse 24, Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So many human beings attempt to lead us astray from the Father and Son. But this, this anointing, the anointing which you have received which you have taken hold of from him, abides in you. You don't need that anyone teach you. But the same anointed teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it taught you, you will abide in him. I think this is one, this is, this is an awesome promise and an awesome truth that we have in God's word. You do not need me to teach you. God has given 
these different gifts to men and to women. These different gifts are to be sourced from him, and they are to be used in service towards our brothers and sisters as we engage one another, specifically in this, in this idea of teaching. But we are promised that you have been given an anointing. It's, a, it's, it's, it's different from the Holy Spirit himself because it's referred to as in it. It has taught you this anointing, this gift. God has given to each one of us this anointing. And the, anoint, the purpose of the anointing is to be able to discern between what is true and what is false. And here's the main issue that enters in that causes a lot of uh, lack of clarity for us. When we listen to falsehoods, often there's an immediate re- recognition that there's something that's off here. But what keeps us from declaring, that's wrong. That's not of Jesus. That's not what his word says. What keeps us from declaring that to ourselves and to the person or the people that are proclaiming the falsehood? A breaking of relationship with them. Those people that speak into our lives, it could be parents, It could be siblings. It could be your children. People you love, people you respect that are saying something that's absolutely not true about God and to stand in opposition to them, it hurts. There's a a sacrifice that's going to occur in that relationship because if they want to continue to abide in that lie... We're told not to have fellowship with them, not to participate with them is the instruction that we have. So getting back to this whole idea of we're commanded not to love the world, that word love, it's don't sacrifice your relationship with God for another relationship. But we all have all of these other thoughts and ideas and relationships with other human beings where we allow them to speak into our lives. And when we ignore the anointing that's been given to us, that, that there's something off with what's being said there. We'll continue to engage in that offness so that the human relationship is not being sacrificed. And then we find ourselves a lover of men rather than a lover of God. Again, we have lots of different warnings in regards to this idea in the Bible. But this promise, we have been given an anointing. And the purpose of this anointing is that we would know what is true and what is false. And again, our only metric, our only gauge is the word of life. Jesus himself and his words from Genesis to Revelation. And now, little children, abide in him. That when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. This is a, I quoted uh, Paul a couple weeks ago in Philippians. He said that in Philippians 1.20, I think, that in nothing, in nothing in his life, Did he want to be ashamed in his relationship with God? 
And that's just, that's just a, it's a cry of his heart that resonates with the cry of my heart. If he were to stand before me right now, I want to be able to kneel, to stand, to celebrate in his presence with the boldness and the confidence of the purity and the cleansing that he's given to me through his blood. I don't, if Jesus were to show up in this room right now, I do not want something shameful to rise to the surface of my mind in regards to what I'm thinking, what I'm speaking, what I'm doing. Because we're told in Christ that he's cleansed us from everything. There's no shame. He's given us victory. But when we listen to the lies and we listen to the falsehoods and we engage in these things, often shame is that emotion. I can't It's that emotion of Adam and Eve when God showed up in the garden. They're hiding. I can't believe we listened to that voice. I can't believe we were disobedient. And then when God starts talking to us, what do we want to do? Well, that woman that you gave me, that serpent that you allowed into the garden, that coworker, that politician, that book, that televangelist, We want to give God all these different excuses. John is writing to us so that we'd remain in him and have bold confidence. When Jesus appears, if he is your God and he is your Lord, he is your Savior, he is your King, you have no shame Praise God. One of the lyrics of the songs that we sang, he's seen everything that we've done. Not only the things that we've done, those things that we think. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you looked at a woman or a man in lust, You've already committed adultery on the inside. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. I've never, I've never picked up a gun, a knife, and hacked away at somebody. But I say to you, you hate somebody? Would you prefer somebody just jump off this planet and go straight to hell? You may not really want that and desire that. Do your words express that? Do your actions express that for your enemies? Those people that stand in absolute opposition, anti-Christ individuals, we're told to continue to love them and brightly shine before them. I just, I I love what it is that God has done for each of us. That he has freed us from all of these areas of shame, of guilt, of pain, of missteps, of sin, of darkness. And he floods us with his light. He floods us with his correction, his voice, his anointing. 
He speaks to us. And it's really, it's easy for all of us in our flesh to switch off that voice. And the reality is, is we, we want God to have the megaphone into our souls. I love the, the imagery that we have, in, especially in the Old Testament, that God's voice is like a mighty rushing river. I always think of something like Niagara, where it's just, I mean, you get around falling water, rushing water. It's thunderous. It shakes you physically. That's what I want for God's voice in each one of our lives and our souls. We have bold confidence before our Father right now in the name of Jesus. There is no shame. And before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him, has been fathered by him. Born again, born from above. And this is where we'll end. Repetition, because Amber already stole it and read it this morning. Behold, what manner of love, the kind of love that the Father has bestowed on us. You write in your Bible, you know, the bestowed is something that he's given to us. I have written in my Bible, lavished. Because it's a word that's, that just rings out to me, the extravagance of the kind of love that God has for me. And I, I know me. I know the pre-Jesus me. I know the post-Jesus me. I know the me today. I know the me yesterday. And I know what I want me to be tomorrow. And when I sit in all that I am outside of Jesus Christ, again, it just gets out of the motion of shame and cringing. But look at this manner of love that God has for me. And then I have to extrapolate that and say, look at the kind of love God has for you. You drive me nuts, but God loves you. I mean, but, I mean seriously, think about it. Think, think about the person. We'll, just, we'll bring politics into it just because it's fun. I don't, I, don't, I don't care what side of the spectrum you're on or anything. I'll just use the word politics because now immediately you all have names in your head. Think of the person that just makes you cringe. Because you know that they are antichrist. What they stand for, what they do, what they say stands in absolute opposition to our king and to our king's kingdom. For God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for that person. If that person does not bend the knee to Jesus as king, they abide in that opposition towards Jesus for all eternity. But that person has the potential. As long as they are breathing, they have the potential to repent. Amber's challenging me this week. What does it mean today to love 
our enemies. What is it, what, and again, I'm not going to answer this, but what does it look like? What does it look like? Jesus revealed to us, what does it look like to love our political enemies? What does it look like to love our cultural enemies? How do you want me to be self-sacrificing just as you were self-sacrificing and loving that person? Give me your mind so that I'll have understanding and clarity and truth as I engage this subject matter and as I engage this individual. Give me your heart of, of compassion and love so that if there's offense, it's the offense of the gospel and not the offense of Blake's flesh. Because Jesus, I sit in the wonder of the love that you have for me, that I am a child of God. And I want nothing more than for every single human soul to experience that same wonder. The world doesn't know us because it doesn't know him. But each person that knows him will know the wonder of this love. My brothers and sisters, beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We don't have, we only, we only have tiny glimpses of what eternity is going to be like. But we know that when Jesus is revealed, we shall be like him, one and the same nature as him. We shall see Jesus as he is. And the promise, every single human being who has this hope, this confident expectation of the truth of this statement, everyone who has this hope in Jesus, in the Father, in the Spirit, you purify yourself just as he is pure. Heavenly Father, we want to give you thanks for your love, for your sacrifice, Jesus, for your remaining with us and in us, for your patient endurance with each one of us, Lord. How patient you were with me when I was a child of darkness. How you chased me. How you sent your different kids into my life to plant seeds and to water those seeds. How you brought me to that threshold 
and invited me to enter into your eternal life if I'd believe in you and receive you, to trust you, to hope in you, to follow you, to love you with my all. We give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your life. We give you thanks for your light. We give you thanks for your love. I give you thanks for brothers and sisters. I give you thanks that you have not returned yet. Because there are still those that you are waiting for. Children of darkness, children of wrath, anti-Christ. That you are waiting for them to repent and to cross over from death into life. Give us that vision, Lord. Give us those words. Give us that endurance to love you, to love one another, to love our enemies. And thanks for that hope and for that vision of that table that we all get to sit down and celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.